following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Happy New Year. It's uh, great to be back at church. Great to be here at Shore again. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty challenging to get back into the office after you've had some time off. And so this week was challenging for me. And I didn't really think about it when Reuben asked me to speak this particular Sunday because it's my first week back in the office. So if you're new to Shore and visiting today, don't judge the sermons by today. Reuben will be back in the next few weeks. So, you guys are just going to have to suffer with what you get from me today. Aren't we blessed to be here in Aotearoa, New Zealand? Such a blessing, isn't it? It's amazing to be here in our little uh, bubble of five million and to not have to worry about so much of what's going on around the globe. When you watch the news, uh, it's kind of sad and depressing, isn't it, to see what's taking place around the world 2020 was a very difficult year, and I think uh, for most of us, we hoped that as soon as January 1st came along, everything would revert back to normal and there would be no problems in the world. Unfortunately, it looks like 2021 uh, is not really starting out any better, so uh, we need to, need to be praying for this year. Um, and you guys may also not be aware of this, but New Zealand and the United States of America recently went through elections at the end of last year. Uh, the New Zealand election seemed to slip by with hardly a word. And, uh, well, what should I say about the USA? It's sad for me, really. It's sad to see how divided and uh, how, um, how on earth is there ever going to be healing to the kind of divide that you see in the USA. And some of you will understand if you've immigrated to New Zealand and you've left your birth country and come to New Zealand, you sometimes look back at your birth country with some heartache, don't you? That's how I look at America right now. There's a lot that uh, can be said. There's a lot that has been said about what's going on over there. Uh, very little of it has brought any healing or hope to society. And you know, every election, I try to ponder what the Christian response should be, and I watch and listen to Christians talk about elections and politics, and it seems that uh, no matter which side we choose, somehow there's going to be things in our policies or with the politicians themselves that we're going to disagree with. But at every election, many Christians hope that finally this election will produce the results we all hope for. That it will be good for Christianity and good for Christian morality. But it's usually, uh, it usually just kind of leads to dissatisfaction in some way. Sometimes our person wins, sometimes the other person wins. But it seems like Jesus kind of always loses out, doesn't it? That Jesus is always placed in the back seat. But you know, as I was pondering this, I began to think, well, that's because it's not the job of politics to usher in Jesus into the world. And we as Christians need to stop considering that as a possibility when we go to the elections. It's not the job of politicians and politics to usher in Jesus. It's the job of the church. Because Jesus is ultimately the only one that brings eternal hope, that brings hope and healing to our societies. Well, I was looking at 1 Peter 
chapter 3, and I wanted to uh, just look at this passage in chapter 3, verse 13 this morning. Because Peter is giving the early Christians there some reminders. Let me read that for you, beginning with, in verse 13. He says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. There's a consistent theme that Peter brings out in uh, both of his books, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And it's the theme that Christians will face hardships and difficulties. And many of those hardships and difficulties will be caused by the very hope that we have. And the world rewards this hope that we have, oftentimes with cynicism and skepticism and insults and resentment, and sometimes even with outright persecution. And so persecution and suffering are a major theme that Peter had on his mind as he wrote this letter. And the people that Peter was writing to, they were either experiencing or they would soon experience trouble and hardship and persecution. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage them, to lift them up, to encourage them to hold on to the hope that they have in Jesus Christ. And so he starts here in verse 13 with that question. Who's going to harm you for doing good? It's a rhetorical question, really, isn't it? It's almost like Peter was kind of being a little sarcastic here. Come on. No one's really going to harm you for doing good, right? That's kind of how... Peter was expressing this because Peter already knew the answer that Satan was making every effort to bring harm to the church and to destroy the faith that the Christians hold. Satan's always looking to stir up trouble. In fact, Peter goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 8, he says that uh, we should be alert and sober minded because Satan is prowling around like the roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so Peter's goal here is to show the Christians how we should prepare ourselves to face that trouble and the persecutions. But it's difficult for us, isn't it, living here in New Zealand, in our safe bubble? It's difficult for us to really understand suffering for our faith, I think. But I'm sure you're familiar with this picture. This is a picture, I think, from last year of the Egyptian Christians on their knees just before ISIS beheaded them for their faith, simply because they refused to deny Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And unfortunately, throughout history, and even in our own times, there are examples of this kind of persecution. But in New Zealand, we're probably not going to face that kind of persecution. We're not going to face physical harm because of our faith, most likely. 
You can move that picture on, Murray. However, that does not mean there's, still, there's not still a threat to our faith here in New Zealand. So even though it's not in the same way, persecution is still coming our way. There's pressure on our faith here in New Zealand. And I love the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I know many of you have often heard this quote from Screwtape Letters. But Screwtape is an older demon who he's training his younger nephew, Wormwood, in the trade of being a demon, in how to deceive people and how to properly go about their job of deceiving people. And so Screwtape points out to Wormwood this quote that we've often heard. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope. Soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. In our society, we're so easily deceived into not recognizing when Satan is persecuting us, when he's putting the pressure on us, because it comes at us so subtly here in New Zealand. He deceives us into thinking that nothing is wrong, that everything's all right. But all the while, he's trying to destroy our faith. Because most often Satan attacks our faith here in New Zealand, not by outright persecution, but by distraction. Slowly taking our attention away from the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you about a story of my friend Victor. Victor was from Myanmar. Unfortunately, he passed away just a couple years ago. But he and I went to seminary, seminary together, and he, he left Myanmar. He left his pregnant wife back in Myanmar to go to America, to go to seminary where I was attending seminary, and he spent two years there. And we got to know each other through a spiritual formation class, and in that spiritual formation class, we had to have prayer partners, and we were supposed to pray with our prayer partners once a week, every week that semester. And I chose to pray with Victor. And so Victor and I would pray every week together. And he challenged my faith every time. Praying with him challenged my perspective of faith and of life. Victor told me uh, the school served meals to the students every day of the week except Saturday. So, of course, for Victor, that meant Saturdays were a day to fast and pray. His prayers were deeper and more profound than my prayers. I prayed generally for the things that we usually pray for. I prayed for health and safety for my family and health and safety for his family. You know, kind of the typical things that we pray for. But he prayed for our faith. He prayed for the depth of our spiritual journey together and the spiritual ministry that we were called to do in seminary. And he prayed at this, this different level than I prayed. And he especially prayed specifically for Christians and their faith, that they would hold on to the hope they had in Christ. But not for those who were in one of the most closed nations in the world, Myanmar. He prayed for the Christians in the free nations, particularly at that time in America where we were praying together. Because he said, it's much more difficult to be a Christian in America and New Zealand than it is in Myanmar. That was kind of hard for me to hear. 
He went to church in his bare feet. Every dollar that he and his family uh, got from ministry, they spent on the students at this small leadership training school that they were leading. But for him, it was much more difficult to be a Christian in our Western nations because of all the distractions, because of all the things that take our attention away from God. The reality is our faith is under attack every day. And Satan would love no more thing than for us to be distracted by this life, for us to get busy, for us to turn our attention away from Christ so that Christ becomes an afterthought to everything else that we do in our lives. So don't be deceived. The church is always under attack by the evil one. And so Peter here gives us some reminders. He says there in verse 14, he says, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. So do not fear their their threats and do not be frightened. Reminder number one Peter gives to the early church and to us is that you are blessed if you suffer for doing what is right. You are blessed for suffering for doing what is right. That's not how we typically look at blessing, is it? Most of the time when you hear people talking about blessings, they're talking about how God has blessed them some way materially. They've got more of something. Do you ever find yourself praying for more suffering so that you can be more blessed? We just we don't think about it that way, do we? And so Peter reminds us, actually, when you suffer for doing what is right and good, you are blessed. Peter reminds the church in that verse 14, also down in verse 17, he says, For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And then over in chapter 4, verse 14, he continues this thought. He says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Isn't that a beautiful passage? If you're insulted because of the hope that you have in Christ, you are blessed, and more so that the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what's taking place there as we suffer? This reinforces what Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who persecute you because of righteousness. Now, he goes on to kind of explain, certainly you're better off for suffering for doing good than for doing evil, right? That's kind of self-explanatory. Many people suffer for doing evil, but that kind of suffering isn't really unexpected, is it? Suffering for doing evil doesn't really seem like suffering to us, right? It kind of just seems like punishment. N.T. Wright, in his commentary on this passage, he says this. He said, Christians are supposed to stand out as distinctive. But when we do and are mocked for it or criticized for it, we are tempted to mock and criticize right back. And then we are no longer distinctive. Mm. The temptation is to get back at those who are hurting us. Retribution is most often how the world works, isn't it? Mickey and I, we raised uh, three sons. And so in our house, when the boys were little, 
retribution came swift and decisively. And it was usually physical in some way. But afterwards, then life got on back to normal. Now, I've been told by parents of girls that that works somewhat differently in the families with daughters. I understand that retribution, when you have a household of girls, comes with much planning and scheming before it comes to fruition. I don't know. But getting back at those who hurt us is a natural reaction. In fact, not to get back, not to have that retribution on someone goes, goes kind of against human nature. So if we need to, if we respond in the same way as those who are hurting us, then we're no different than them. So Peter felt that we needed to be reminded that to suffer for doing good is a blessing. All right, reminder number two, Peter says here. He says later on in verse 15, to in your hearts revere Christ. Reminder number two, in your hearts revere Christ. Now, I prefer the 1984 version of the NIV translation here, not because I'm old, but because I felt like it's, it's a simpler explanation. But in your hearts, set apart Christ in your hearts. Set apart Christ. Set apart Christ as Lord. To revere Christ is to set him apart in your heart. To carve out a place in your heart that's set aside for Jesus Christ to be Lord. Another word that's often translated as sanctify, which also means to set apart. And so to revere Christ in your heart is to allow Christ to be Lord and ruler of your life. Lord and ruler of your decision making. To allow his principles to take priority in your life. Regardless of, of the distractions that are around you. The things that preoccupy our minds. We should set Christ in our hearts. So that his principles flow out of us in our daily lives. Now Mickey and I were discussing this last week. What does it look like to revere Christ in our hearts? And we had a lovely discussion about that. And then she said, actually, it reminds me of children's Christmas programs. And I thought in that moment, my mind does not work like hers. <laughs> but the best part of the Christmas production, she pointed out, is watching the kids on stage, isn't it? Because kids do not usually have the hang-ups and the uh, inhibitions that we do on stage. And so they don't really worry about what the audience thinks of them. And when you're leading kids in a production, which she's done often... It's hard to get the kids to focus on the leader because they're focused on the people that matter most to them. Their full attention is on their mom or dad or grandparents or whoever has come with them. Their full attention on, is on those who matter most to them. And they really could care less about the rest of the audience. And I thought, that is profound to think about. It's a perfect illustration of what it is to revere Christ in your hearts. That no matter what else is going on around us, no matter the distractions that are vying for our attention, our sole focus needs to be on Jesus Christ and his principles in our lives. And we, when we focus on him and allow him to come into our hearts in such a way that we, we revere him as Lord of, of our life, he transforms us. He transforms our minds. He transforms our thinking. He transforms our reactions to things. 
Well, and lastly there, Peter says, reminder number three, always be ready to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. And I want you to look carefully at what Peter doesn't say there. Because Peter doesn't say that we need to have an exact answer for every question that somebody might have about our religious faith. Instead, Peter is saying to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't need to to confront every question that somebody has about our faith. The only real answer we need is the reason for our hope in Christ. Why do you have hope in Christ? Why is it that Jesus Christ means so much to you? Why do you come to church? Why do you put your hope in him? Many believers, I think, struggle to answer that simple question. And it's just sometimes hard to to put our answer into words, isn't it? Why is it that you believe what you believe? But ask yourself, why is it that I put my hope in Christ? For some of you, it might be an intellectual thing, and you might pull out all the apologetic facts and figures for why you put your hope in Christ. But for others of you, it might just simply be those intangible things, the things like inner peace and joy and certainty that you get out of your relationship to God. But what is the reason for your hope? The reason for my hope? I kind of narrowed it down to two simple things. One, I believe that Jesus in the Bible offers the best answer for why we exist and the meaning to life. But secondly, my relationship with God gives me genuine hope and peace and joy and certainty in a very mixed up world. That's it, really. That's the simplicity of my hope in Christ. And when my relationship with God isn't strong... Neither are those things in my life. I'm not negating the importance of study and researching and and really digging into the depth of our intellectual understanding of scriptures. But just as essential as all of that is your personal connection, your personal relationship to God, because that's where your faith comes alive. So it's important to put into words the reason for the hope that you have. And then anything beyond that, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Holy Spirit to give you the words. Jesus said to the disciples in Luke chapter 12, Do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The Spirit will teach us and give us the words to speak at that time. And so Peter gives us these reminders. That we are actually blessed when we suffer for doing good. That we should revere Christ in our hearts and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. Well, I started out this message with some thoughts on politics. And just to let you know, my hope is not in any politician or any political party. Politicians have a job to do and I pray for them. I pray that they'll try and produce the best outcome that they can for our nations. However, I believe that the world is searching for hope. 
And the great divides in politics is based around hope. One side hopes their side will bring about the greatest good. The other side hopes their side will bring about the greatest good. But the world is always striving and never ultimately finding the ultimate hope. My neighbor is an agnostic. And we often have great conversations uh, in the driveway about philosophy and life and religion and all kinds of things. And he's, a, he's just a, the nicest man you'd ever meet. But he says, I'm, not, I'm agnostic. I just don't know. I can't, he can't put his faith. He can't come around to put his faith in God. But he says, obviously, the world must be created. It had to have a start of some kind, but he's agnostic. He said, he said to me, you're lucky. You've got hope. I said, well, you could have that hope too, you know, but he said, I was trying to manipulate him. I said, no, I'm just saying you could have that hope too. But we have great conversations, but really he lacks the hope. The world lacks this ultimate hope in Jesus Christ. The Bible uses hope over 160 times in the NIV translation. It says things like, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we possess. Let us rejoice in hope. For in this hope we are saved. And Jesus said that our faith should be that of little children. And little children always have this simple faith and this this abounding hope, don't they? You see it when Mr. Whippy shows up and the sound of Mr. Whippy comes around. That abounding hope in every child has that great hope that today will be the day. (laughs) And whether or not they get ice cream on that day, the next time Mr. Whippy shows up, that abounding hope comes alive again. Well, over the last few years, I've been trying to study Tereo Mori. And uh, one of the first songs you learn when you're studying Tereo is a song called Etoru Naumea. And it's a very simple song, but I love it because it's straight out of Scripture. And uh, I wanted to just end with this. The words in Māori are Etoru Naumea Naumea Nui. Ekiana te paipara tu manako fakapono kote mea nui kote araha. Which is, there are three things, three very important things stated in the Bible. Hope, faith, and the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, and love. Well, none of us knows what this year will bring about. But my prayer is that 2021 will be a a year of great hope, of strong faith, and abounding love for God and for one another. Will you stand with me and pray? Father, I just thank you for the great privilege of standing here today and speaking of your word. I pray that as this year progresses, that we will not forget the reminders that you've given us in Scripture, that we will hold on to the hope that we have in you, Lord. I pray that each person here today will revere Christ in their hearts, that they'll carve out space in their life for you each and every day, that we will live for you, that we will know and see your blessing, even if it comes in times of suffering. Father, we... We long to be in your presence, but we trust that you are with us even now. We look to you, Father, 
Will you please bless this year and help us to cling to our faith and our hope and our love. Let us love you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And let us love our neighbors as ourselves. It's in Jesus' name we pray. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.